We're going to take a break from our regular scheduled uh, programming on preaching through John and Colossians on this Christmas Eve morning to visit once again this story of the arrival of the King of Glory into this world. As I told you, I never, ever tire of recounting the remarkable story of how we think of it. The sovereign, omnipotent God lowered himself. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 7 says, but emptied himself. Oh, I could preach on that for an hour. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And then you have Romans chapter 8 and verse number 3 that reminds us, in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. And as we know, though he himself knew no sin. So let's turn our attention now to the king's arrival and we'll just look at a portion of Matthew's recounting of the story in verse 18 and we'll read through verse 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. Now, we often talk about how it's just so amazing to be living during a time in human history when such dramatic changes have taken place in just such a few generations, both technologically and culturally, never before in the history of the world have such dramatic changes taken place in such a short period of time. If you think about it from the Garden of Eden up through the 1800s, Everything was kind of basically the same with a few inventions that came along. But since the late 1800s, things have exploded. I had a co-worker who uh, I worked with when I was at the assessor's office who was still working part-time at the age of 80. He was allowed to work 100 days a year, and he had his little calendar. And he would mark off the exact number of days till he got to the 100 days. And I loved this man. He was a dear 
became a dear friend of mine, Mr. Leland. He's still, he's passed on and gone to glory now. But he's been a, or he was a lifelong resident of Central. And some of you have heard this and some of you have not. And he grew up right here on Blackwater Road that attaches to my road, uh, Cary Road. And he told me, we would, I would ask him all kind of questions because there's not a lot of work goes on at the assessor's office. Let me tell you, it's just a lot of time you have downtime working for the assessor. But he told me that he clearly remembers and he always lived on Blackwater Road as a child when Blackwater Road was a gravel road and nobody in Central had electricity or running water. And that man was still alive, sitting there talking to me in the assessor office. He remembers how amazed he was when the power company came down Blackwater Road and they were stringing a power line and they had one line that went to the house and it went to one drop light that hung from the ceiling in the living room. And when they turned it on, he said it was like daytime at night. And they all just sat in the living room and just marveled at the light that was now in the house. Now, just think about the fact that in one lifetime, that man went from that to an iPhone and a computer that will answer any question that you ask it, any subject under the sun. And then think about AI and all the other technological advancements. We went to the moon. Whole nine, Jordan doesn't think we went there, but we'll, that's a matter for another day. But just think about that. In addition to this, the cultural changes. I mean, just in my lifetime, and I'm only 55 years old, I, I find it fascinating to watch me TV. Christy loves me TV. She watches back to back Leave It to Beavers every morning as she's getting ready to go to work. It's a double feature of Leave It to Beaver that comes on every morning at seven and seven thirty. But to think back and to remember when I watch MT, uh, me TV, to remember what America used to be entertained by and then fast forward to today and think about what it's entertained by now. It's a vast difference. There are things on TV now that would have absolutely been unthought of being aired during the days of my childhood. And most of us can say the same. And the same is true in the church. Kind of like that little quote I just read from Jordan's phone. We've talked about this many times, the decline in the preaching of sound doctrine in favor of man-centered pop psychology preaching and all the rest that make up the, the decline of the church in America especially. And included in this decline is something that we have seen come about in religious polls that have been taken over the past several generations. And it is a continuing decline in the percentage of professing, believing Christians who believe in the literal virgin birth of Jesus Christ. There are less and less people who believe this, that profess to be Christians. And of course, you've probably noticed this year and every year, this, this topic 
<coughs> excuse me, <coughs> makes the rounds on TV every year. Uh, Discovery Channel, History Channel, CNN, all do specials. But by logical necessity, if you deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, at the same time, you deny the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God in human flesh. It's very clear that all four Gospels teach that Jesus considered himself to be more than just a man. And it's also very clear from the rest of the New Testament, as well as all the historical records, that Jesus, his disciples, all the early church, all the early church fathers, except for the ones who were in deep heresy, held him to be none other than the divine son of God. That is irrefutable. Even his enemies knew that this was what he claimed. If you look there in John chapter 5 and verse number 18, he's there with the Pharisees again, and it says, For this reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They understood what he was claiming. And that's why it is said, and you've heard me say it many times, the quote from C.S. Lewis, that you only have three choices for what you can do with Jesus. Either he was a liar, either he was a lunatic, or he is Lord. Those are the only three choices that you have. Because he claimed to be God incarnate. There's no higher claim than that for a human being to make. And so when these liberal theologians come along and they deny the virgin birth and they thereby deny the deity of Christ, you have to wonder, why do they even want to be identified as Christians? Because if they are right and he's not God, then guess what? They only have two choices from Scripture. Either he was a liar or he was crazy. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the central fact of the New Testament. How you don't believe that and still call yourself a Christian is a great mystery to me. The essence and the power of the gospel is that God himself, creator God, became a man. And that by being both truly God and truly man, he was able to reconcile sinful man to holy God. And in fact, he was the only one who could because he was the only one who could live the perfect life that we must live in order to be right with God as our substitute. No one else would do. No one else could do. Jesus' virgin birth, excuse me, his substitutionary atonement, His resurrection, his ascension and return are all integral aspects of his deity. And here's the deal. They all stand or fall together. There's no middle ground here for anybody. There's no third way here 
for anybody. If any of those teachings, all clearly taught in Scripture, is rejected, the entire gospel is rejected and Christianity falls apart and I throw my Bible in the garbage, let me go eat, drink, and be merry because pretty soon I'm going to be dead. Okay? So today, to highlight this truth, here we are at Christmas Eve morning. I want to dig into the very first aspect we could say of Christ's deity, his virgin birth. Look again with me at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, do you realize what a statement that is? Found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. What does that point to? Well, obviously that points to his deity right away. Now, by itself, this verse does not prove that the Bible has God for its author, but the very fact that the remarkable account of Jesus's divine conception is given to us in one phrase of one verse strongly suggests that this story was not just man-made alone. Why do I say that? Well, because think about it. It is just not human nature for us to describe something so astounding and so marvelous in such a brief little space. Any human author only would expand and elaborate and give every detail possible. Now, Matthew goes on to give more information related to the virgin birth for sure. But notice that the fact of it is given in just one sentence, as it often is in the Bible. Here in the first 17 verses of Matthew, we get a list of Jesus's human genealogy, but only part of one verse gives us his divine genealogy. In his divinity, Jesus descended from his place in the heavens as the eternal second person of the Trinity by a miraculous and never repeated act of the Holy Spirit. And yet the Holy Spirit divinely inspires Matthew to just state this. She was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. Pow! What an affirmation that this was not written by just solely a human author. This verse also identifies Mary as the mother of Jesus. Now, we don't have much information about Mary. We learn elsewhere in Scripture that she was a sinner, just like you and me. Sinner saved by grace, but a sinner still. Very likely, she was a native of Nazareth, came from a poor family. She had a sister named Salome, the mother of James and John, making them Jesus' cousins. 
We know Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist, was her relative, most likely her cousin. We know that Mary was a godly woman, sensitive, submissive to the will of God, but still a sinner, just like you and me, just like Joseph, who we know less about. His father's name was Jacob. He was a craftsman, a construction worker, most likely and specifically a carpenter by trade. But most importantly, there in verse 19, tells us he was a righteous man. King James says, a just man. Doesn't say he was perfect. But what this means is he was a believer. Joseph was an Old Testament saint like Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Notice the verse also says Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And this is possible, or it's very possible that they were very, very young whenever they were betrothed. Girls were often betrothed at the age of 12 or 13, and the boys not much older than that. Now, in Jewish custom, the the betrothal was more, much more than our modern-day engagement. It, it, it was as binding as marriage is today. As a matter of fact, you had to have a divorce to terminate a betrothal. Now, a Hebrew marriage involved two stages. There was the Kedushan, it was called, the betrothal. And then there was the Hupah, that was the marriage ceremony. And the Hebrew marriages were usually always arranged. So ladies, your husband was picked for you and men, your wife was picked for you. Then there was a contract made with a dowry, a a bride price, and it was paid by the groom's family to the bride's father. It was called the Mohar, and the contract was binding as soon as it was made. And the couple was considered legally married in this betrothal period, even though the hoopah and the actual marriage ceremony and the consummation of the marriage didn't happen until as much as a year later. The betrothal period served as a time of probation, a time of testing of fidelity. And the couples had little, if any, social interaction. And remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. The husband would also be busy building the home to to show to the bride and the family that he was capable of providing for the, the new wife. So they had very little contact during this time. So hello, Houston. We got a problem here. This verse tells us that during the betrothal period, before they came together to consummate the marriage, Mary was found with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, sadly, that'd be no big deal in today's culture. Teenage girls get pregnant, not married all the time in our day. But let me tell you something. Back in this day, this was scandalous. I mean, it was scandalous up till 1960s in our country, right? 
Sexual purity is high on the list in both the Old and New Testament. God is very serious about it. The Jews knew it. The Jews believed it. The Jews practiced it. And Mary's virginity was an important evidence of her godliness. And yet, think about it. She's found with trial, with child, and it is a trial, during this betrothal period when she's not even supposed to be around Joseph. <coughs> Excuse me. This is a hard circumstance for this young couple. This is a great time for us to remind ourselves not to listen to the TV preachers who tell us on a regular basis that coming to Jesus frees you from your problems and makes you healthy, wealthy, and wise. As evidenced here, if you are a believer, the Lord, for His purposes, absolutely will put you in a hard spot. A real hard spot. Why? Well, there's a lot of answers to that question. One could be to build the endurance of your faith. Kind of like when you curl in weights, it builds up strength in your physical muscles. To build up patience. To teach you trust. To test your faith. Not for him to see your faith. He knows your faith. He gave you your faith. He granted it as a gift to you. But for us, once we've come through the fiery trial and our faith is still intact, for us to see that our faith is genuine. There are many reasons why God puts us through hard things. And now old Joseph, wow. He's really in a hard spot right here. Look again at verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, remember, this betrothal meant that they were legally married. And because Joseph was a righteous man, He had a double problem here. He knew. As soon as he found out, he knew. I shouldn't go through with this marriage. He knew. He knew big time. He wasn't the father. There was no question about that. Now I want you to just put yourself in his thinking. He could not have possibly had any other thought than the fact that Mary had committed adultery with another man. As just a mortal man like me and you, how could he have possibly thought any other thought than that? And it must have been mind-boggling. Because... If God had picked Mary to be the mother of Jesus, you know she had to be a special girl as far as man's standards go. I would think she would probably have stood out in that regard. So this, when he found out, it had to be 
agonizing. It had to be bewildering to him. Because obviously Joseph loved Mary. And not with Hollywood love or shallow imitation of what we call love in our American culture. Joseph loved Mary with the love of a righteous man. The love of a regenerate man. The love of a believing man. The love of a godly man. Of a saved man. There's no other love like that. Because of that, righteous agape love and kindness. Here's Joseph faced with this impossible dilemma. He could not bear the thought of Mary being shamed publicly. That's what was on his mind. That's what not wanting to disgrace her means in this verse. He could have done that. I mean, it could have went so far as having her stoned to death because that's what Deuteronomy 22 called for in the law for committing adultery. But Joseph, he loved her with godly love, with the love of a just man. And think about it. Joseph had been shamed by this too. But consider him. His concern was not for his own shame. His biggest concern was for Mary and Mary's shame and not wanting her to be disgraced. And since he didn't want to disgrace her publicly, this verse says he planned to send her away secretly. This meant his plan was to divorce her secretly. And even though before long, everybody would have guessed what what has happened. Why? Because the belly's growing. It's getting bigger. And no marriage ceremony is happening. And for a little while... She would have been protected and she would have been allowed to live. Just think about what an agonizing trial this must have been for young Joseph and Mary. I bet there wasn't a whole lot of sleep happening as this was happening. And as God often does with his children, just when we are almost at the breaking point. Just when we are at the end of the why is this happening to me rope, he lets us know who's in control. He lets us know who's in charge. And he reminds us who we are supposed to trust no matter the circumstances that are before us. Look at verse 20 and 21. But when he had considered this, it's all in his mind. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That is 
God to the rescue. Getting Joseph out of that hard spot through an angel with the greatest and most important piece of information ever known to all mankind. God is coming to earth to save his people from their sins. And you, Joseph, you are going to be his legal earthly father. You're commissioned with taking care of him and even naming him. So this hard, impossible, no way to get out of dilemma needed by necessity a supernatural way out and God provided it supernaturally through the event with this angel, which must have been more real to Joseph than anything he ever experienced in his life. And we're going to see in a minute how he responded. But before we do, look in verse 21. The angel says, you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is the form of the Hebrew names Joshua, Jeshua, Jehosha. The basic meaning of what is Jehovah or most specifically Yahweh. The name of God from the Old Testament will save. Look at verse 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, at this point, Matthew explains that the virgin birth of Jesus was predicted by God through Isaiah in the Old Testament, uh, clearly identifying here the birth of Jesus as a fulfillment perfectly of Old Testament prophecy. Notice the all this in verse 22 of Christ's birth was the fulfillment of what was spoken by the Lord. Folks, that's the definition of biblical inspiration. God does the saying and the human instrument is just the means God uses to bring his word to us. And in this case, again, the prophet was Isaiah and Matthew is quoting a prophecy given by Isaiah from Isaiah 7, 14 that was uttered 700 years before this event came to pass. The name Emmanuel is used more as a title or a description than a proper name. And what a meaning. God with us. Now, please, somebody please, explain to me how the Bible could possibly be any clearer than that as to who Jesus is. God with us. I'll wait. Okay? And not only that, how does a man hundreds, 700 years earlier come up with this idea of a pregnant virgin who's going to be called God with us? 
How does that happen? Naturally. There's only one answer. Divine inspiration. That's the only way you can answer it. Don't you know that the Jews who had been to synagogue the week before Jesus was born had those verses from Isaiah that they had been reading for 700 years? <laughs> Just another of the many proofs that the Bible is what it claims to be, the literal, inspired, infallible inerrant, authoritative, all-sufficient word of the living God. There's no other book like this book. And while the skeptics can balk at Jesus' virgin birth and deity, it is impossible to deny, if you have a brain and a limited IQ either, that this is what the Scripture teaches, okay? Just in these few verses we've looked at so far, verse 18, Mary is said to be found with child by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, Jesus is told by the angel, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 21, he's given the title through the prophet Isaiah, God with us. So the problem that these skeptics are having is not with the Bible. Because the Bible's always right. The problem is a sinful unwillingness to submit to what the Scripture is clearly teaching. Jesus is God. Jesus was born of a virgin, and you don't need a Ph.D. to understand the clear meaning of these words. But unfortunately, many do. Unfortunately, many don't believe Jesus is God. Now, and they're very religious. Now, in our last verses of this text for today, we get Joseph's response to this amazing supernatural angel visit. Look at verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And took Mary as his wife, verse 25, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So what is Joseph's reaction? Well, all we know from Scripture is one thing. Immediate obedience. Okay? That kind of tells you something about how real it was to him. That he was aroused from his sleep confirms that this visit from the angel comes in a dream. We see this method, method used by God to communicate several times throughout Scripture. And obviously, when God sends an angel to communicate his will in a dream, this is not a dream you will ever forget for your whole life, ever. It was obviously so real. And so vivid to Joseph that he immediately didn't care what the people of Nazareth thought. Who cares? He went straight out and finished that marriage procedure. And I just want you to think about after the dream was over, just put yourself in the, the agony that Joseph had been going through up to that point. How, how amazed and how relieved and how thankful 
that Joseph must have been, he must have been thinking, man, God really does have my back here. This is incredible. Not only could he take Mary as his wife with honor and with righteousness, but he would be given the stewardship of caring for God's own son while he was growing up. And you can you just imagine Mary's relief the day that Joseph walked into whatever room she was in and said, I got something to tell you, Mary. And then he recounted the dream. Now they're both on the same page with this amazing, awesome responsibility. And we don't know much else about Joseph's life except that he took Jesus to the temple for dedication as a man, provider of his family, protector of his family. He took his family to Egypt during Herod's bloody tirade and he took his family to the Passover in Jerusalem when Jesus was 12. That's all the rest that we know. But one thing else must, must have been certain about both Joseph and Mary. They had to have been godly people because it's just inconceivable to think that God would entrust his son, the God man into a family where mom and dad were not totally committed and faithful to him, which should tell us something about the order of our own families, shouldn't it? Matthew also makes it clear that Mary remained a virgin until she gave birth, which implies clearly that normal marital relations began after that time. This and the fact that Jesus' brothers and sisters, physical, literal, in the Greek, brothers and sisters are spoken of numerous times in the Gospels, prove that Mary did not stay a perpetual virgin as Catholicism teaches. She did not. Listen to me. Mary deserves special recognition as God's chosen instrument to bring Jesus into the world. But Mary is never to be venerated. Mary is never to be worshipped. Mary is never to be prayed to in any way because she's a dead sinner. Sinner saved by grace, but she's dead and she's in heaven. She did not ascend into heaven bodily. She is not the immaculate conception. And I'm quite certain that she is horrified right now in heaven that billions of people worship her in that way. And you can get mad at me all you want about that. Your argument's not with me. Your argument's with Scripture. And then Joseph, in his final act of obedience to God's instruction, did just what the angel said. Look at the end of verse 25. And he called his name Jesus. Let me tell you something. The supernatural birth of Jesus is the only way that we can account for the life that he lived, that we learn from Scripture. A skeptic once who denied the virgin birth, he was going to be snarky 
Then he asked a Christian, now, if I told you that that child over there was born without a human father, would you believe me? To which the believer replied, yes, if he lived as Jesus lived. The greatest outward evidence for Jesus's supernatural virgin birth and deity is the life that he lived. The life of the king of glory as inspired by the Holy Spirit to be written down for all the church, for all of history to read over and over again. Now, today we've looked at the king's arrival from part of Matthew's perspective, and I encourage you to read all of both Matthew and Luke's perspective tonight to get a good full picture of what happened when God became a man to save his people from their sins. And no matter what people choose to believe, no one can escape the reality that it is the eternal destiny of every man and woman ever born that hangs in the balance of what they do with this king who was born on this earth over 2,000 years ago. Can't escape it. Was he a liar? Was he mentally ill? Or is he Lord? It's your only three options. Is he who he claimed to be? Emmanuel, God with us. If you have come to the conclusion that he is Emmanuel, let me remind you that just believing that fact is not enough for you to spend eternity with him. Because as we talked about last week, the devils believe and they tremble intellectually. To spend eternity with Jesus, you got to come to him his way. You got to come to him on his terms of Bible repentance and saving faith. That's what believing in Jesus is. You've got to come to him acknowledging your sin. You've got to come to him acknowledging your spiritual bankruptcy. You must repent and you must turn from your sin and turn toward him in who he is and what he's done as a substitute for sinners. That's what believing in Jesus means. You must believe that having faith in his perfect life and his substitutionary death on the cross and his rising from the grave on the third day has the power to reconcile you to God. That's what believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is, that it actually has, truly has the ability to place all of your sins upon Christ and be punished in Christ as your substitute and all of his righteousness is reckoned to you and put on your account to make you right with God. That's what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not come to enable you to live your best American dream now. That is not why he came. He came to save his people from their sins. That's what this Bible says. You believe in him on his terms. You will live your best life forever. Merry Christmas. Let's pray.